seated. All right, good morning again. Grab a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 6. If you have a copy of the New Testament with you, Luke chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. Are we on? And can you all hear me okay? We're working with the new speakers. There we go. We have new speakers today, so we're kind of trying out this new system. Luke chapter 6, if you didn't hear that, turn to Luke chapter 6. Uh, This will be the third week in a row that we have studied through what's called the Sermon on the Plain. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know the Sermon on the Mount is the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached. And you find that in the Gospel of Matthew. Well, in Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Plain is kind of Luke's equivalent to Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And what I've mentioned the last few weeks is we have gone through this sermon and we're just kind of dissecting it and going slowly through what I call some of the core teachings of Jesus. These are some of the core teachings of what it means to follow Christ. This is Discipleship 101. And we find ourselves towards the end of this sermon that Jesus preaches. And I'm going to start with reading just verse 37 and 38 this morning to get our minds thinking in the direction of trying to understand What Jesus teaches. Jack read it for us this morning. Jack, I appreciate that. So let's read again verse 37 and 38. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure that you get back. Let's go to God in prayer as we give them the thoughts this morning. Father, we come before you today and we're thinking about so many things. Lord, as parents or as individuals, wherever we're at in life, there's maybe pain that we're going through, struggles that we're having right now. So many things that Satan will try to use to distract us. And I just pray that you would help us to focus on you As we've taken communion together, we sing these songs, we gather together to fellowship as a body of believers, and I just pray that right now, you'll pour into me the gift of preaching, and that you'll speak through your word, which is living and active, into our hearts, into our minds, and that you will mold us and shape us and make us more like Christ. We thank you for all that you've given us, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, just with these two verses, what is Jesus talking about? Give and it will be given to you. The measure you use will be used against you. Do not judge. You will not be judged. Do not condemn. You will not be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. What's he talking about here? This is the, the sowing and reaping principle. If you were to summarize verse 37 and 38, I think it would be that. You reap what you sow and you reap the amount that you sow. Uh, for years... There's a story that is circulated around amongst preachers. It's kind of like a preacher's fable or a preacher's parable. It might be true or maybe some elements of truth and legend has changed the story through time. But the story is about a a carpenter, not a carpenter, a contractor in a small town in Europe who built a lot of houses for this town. And he was really well known for what he did. One day, the wealthiest guy in town came up to this contractor and said, I want you to build me a house, and I want you to build me the best house you could possibly build. And this wealthy man gave the contractor a lot of money. And he said, buy the finest material, right? Do a good job on this house, and I'm going on a trip, and when I get back, I expect the house to be done. 
So the wealthy man gave the contractor the money. He left. And the contractor thought to himself, this guy is the wealthiest guy in town. He already has two or three houses. Why does he need another one? And then he thought to himself, I build all these houses. And I don't even have a house for myself. He'd been renting apartments. So then he thought to himself, here's what I'll do. I'll take the extra money that's given for this house from the wealthy man. I'll do a good job on the outside, but I'll do a sloppy job on the inside. I'll buy inferior material. Okay, and then I'll have enough money left over to go build my own self a house. So that's what he did. He made the outside look nice, but the inside was cheap and it was sloppy. And when the wealthy man got back into town, he wanted to see this house that he had paid for, for the contractor to build. So the contractor was taking him down the road to show him the house. And from the outside, the wealthy man said, it looks beautiful because he did a great job on the outside. And then this wealthy man handed the keys over to the contractor. And he said, this house is for you, my friend. I had you build this house for yourself. Okay, the contractor smiled and he said, thank you, but his heart sank because he realized what he had done. He had done a cheap job on the house and now he's got to live in the house that he built. Jesus says in verse 38, with the measure that you use, it will be used against you. You reap what you sow. And that's what happened with this contractor. Uh, what he sowed was a cheap house and now he's reaping that. He has to live in that. And that's kind of how, in a lot of ways, life works. But what Jesus is saying in the kingdom of God, this is how it works. Now you reap what you sow. Now take a step back to verse 37. And what he starts with in this section is do not judge and you will not be judged. And we may get tripped up there. We may get stumped there because what does Jesus mean by this? Most probably younger people, whatever you would want to categorize younger people as, they often quote this from Jesus. You can't judge me. And sometimes we misuse what Jesus is saying here just to get out of being held accountable. So what does Jesus mean by this? And I think there's some tension with this, this opening statement in verse 37. This do not judge and you will not be judged statement. There's tension within our churches, tension within our lives. And on one hand, it's because Christians unfortunately have had the reputation. We've been known by some circles, by some either in the church or outside of the church as being judgmental. In 2007... The Barner Research Group, which I'm sure maybe you've heard of them before. They do a lot of, of research. It's helpful uh, to give us an idea of where we stand in the Christian faith today. They did some research and they polled. This was back in 2007, but I think it still applies today. It gives you the idea. They polled 16 through 29-year-olds and they asked them, what do you think of when you hear the word Christian? What comes to mind when you think of a Christian? 87% of the thousands of people that were polled said the first thing they think of is someone who's judgmental. 85% said they think of somebody who's hypocritical. So even though that was done in 2007, it gives you the idea of how people on the outside view Christian, and if the first thing they think of is somebody that's judgmental or hypocritical, then we're off a little bit. Because Jesus tells us, do not judge. And if the first thing that people think about is, we are judgmental, then something's wrong. Jesus spent a lot of time with tax collectors and sinners. And they wanted to be in his company. We don't read anywhere where they say, I don't want to be around Jesus. He's too judgmental. Now, at the same time, Jesus called them to a higher standard of living. 
So he didn't come across as judgmental, yet he raised their standard of living. He changed their life. I don't know if you've ever felt judged. Maybe you're sitting in the audience today and you're like, you know, I've come to church off and on. And I feel like people are judgmental. Maybe you don't feel comfortable coming to church. And if that's the case, I'm sorry you feel that way. I wish you didn't feel that way. And sometimes we feel judged. But really, nobody's judging you. It's just your perception. You've made up in your mind that people are judging you. So sometimes Christians are viewed as judgmental in an unfair way. And sometimes we've earned that reputation, uh, unfortunately, because we have been judgmental. I remember when I was in college, uh, as a college student, I was asked to speak to several youth groups at a youth rally one night. It was, it was, I think it was August. It was really hot outside. Most of the kids were wearing shorts and a t-shirt. It was a week night. So I decided I would dress a little bit nicer than the teenagers. And I wore a button-up shirt. And I wore sandals. And I didn't tuck my shirt in, which I didn't tuck my shirt in today because something's wrong with our washing machine. And all my shirts keep shrinking a little bit. So I have <laughs> something's wrong with it. i got to change my wardrobe. But that night, the, re- the reason I didn't tuck my shirt in is because I was speaking to teenagers. And uh, after the lesson was over, an older gentleman who was there that night came up to me and he said, you know, your lesson was okay. Good job. But couldn't you have at least tucked your shirt in? And he said, well, I guess it matches the sandals. And I immediately responded and just said, well, I spent all summer working with homeless people, so you think I care that much about how I look? And I probably shouldn't have popped off at him like that, but... I felt judged. I was like, man, that's all he can think about is how I look, the external appearance. Something that is really not a moral issue or salvation issue, but that's what he was focused on. And I know what he was trying to do. He was trying to help me look more professional. And now, later on in life, I can appreciate that. But we didn't really have the type of relationship for him to be able to speak into my life that way, or for at least the way that he approached it. So in that moment, I felt judged. And if you've ever felt judged, it doesn't feel great. There's a a time and a place to speak into somebody's life. And I think we kind of have to earn that. So unfortunately, and maybe you've experienced it, or maybe you've just heard of it, or maybe you're hearing about it for the first time, uh, Christians come across sometimes as judgmental. Now that's on one hand, but on the other hand, on the other extreme is, I don't think what Jesus says, do not judge and you will not be judged. And he's saying, I'm okay, you're okay, let's just tolerate each other because that's kind of the American culture way. It's like, let's just not interfere with each other. You can live however you want to live. I'm okay, you're okay. And I don't think that's what Jesus means either. If you're reading the Sermon on the Mount, the equivalent to this teaching, when Jesus says, do not judge in Matthew chapter 7, or you too will be judged, well, later in Matthew 7... Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. How can you watch out for somebody who is a false prophet without using a little bit of evaluation, a little bit of discernment, a little bit of judgment? All throughout the New Testament. Every time I read through the New Testament, I think all these churches in the first century are being warned to watch out who they let influence them as a church and as individuals. If we're supposed to be careful about who we let influence us, We have to make some judgments on people's behavior and character. And we have to be discerning people. So it's like Jesus says, do not judge. Well, we shouldn't be judgmental people. That shouldn't be what we're known for. But at the same time, we're called to be discerning people. I think Jesus offers some commentary in verse 41 and 42 of Luke 6. So I'm getting a little out of order with the text here. But Jesus says in verse 
41, why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye? You don't notice the log in your own eye. He's using a little bit of humor here. Jesus had a sense of humor. N.T. Wright said this is a verbal cartoon. You can just think about it, how extreme this is. In verse 42, he says, how can you say to your neighbor, neighbor, friend, let me take, take out the speck in your eye when you yourself do not see the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. An extreme example. You know, nobody lives with a log in their own eye. The point is, if you have a huge glaring log sticking out of your eye, and you have no concern for that, but what you are concerned about is somebody else has a speck of sawdust in their eye, there's a problem with that. And the religious leaders of Jesus' time, this is what they were doing. They were ignoring their own sin. And they were taking the magnifying glass and they were looking at the speck of sawdust in everybody else's eye. And so in a lot of ways, I think this is a criticism against those religious leaders in the first century. But the beautiful thing about Jesus' teachings, especially His core teachings here, is it doesn't just apply to the first century, it applies to us today in the 21st century as much as it did back then. Because His point is true. How can we focus so much on somebody else's sin and ignore our own sin. A few weeks ago, a preacher named Rick actually put this on Twitter, and I thought it was great and pertained to what we're talking about today. He said, let's put the brakes on calling out the sins of others if our own sins aren't breaking our, aren't breaking our hearts. So what he's saying, I think, is exactly what Jesus is saying. If we are really quick to call out the sin in others, but our own sin is not breaking our hearts, there's something backwards. There's something missing here. Jesus is saying the way that you don't come across as a judgmental person is that you focus on everybody else's flaws but ignore your own sin. Now keep in mind this example that Jesus uses in verse 41 and 42. The little parable, the little story ends with then you can see clearly to take the speck out of someone else's eye. So it ends with iron sharpening iron, with helping somebody, with Maybe not being judgmental, but be willing to help somebody grow in their own journey of transformation in Christ. And sometimes that, that involves hard conversations or confrontation. But get the order right. Jesus is saying you first deal with the log in your eye before you deal with the speck in someone else's eye. And this is kind of an ongoing issue. Then This means that we live with humility. As we try to help others grow try to make an impact for Christ, we also live with the fact that we also are sinners. So that causes us to have some humility. You reap what you sow. So if you're really harsh and you're really hard on others and you're, always, and you're known for being judgmental and maybe that's who you are and you never give anybody the benefit of the doubt, there's going to come a time when there's going to be some sort of moral failure in your own life. Maybe you'll make a mistake Maybe you'll treat somebody unfairly, handle something poorly. And if you've gone around being judgmental and harsh and hard on everybody, when you mess up, when you make a mistake, they're more likely to be hard on you. But if you've been generous in your assumptions of others, giving people the benefit of the doubt, loving people, then when you mess up, they may be more likely to give you grace as well. 
After all, if we look at our own lives, you know, how do we want to be judged and measured? Well, I want people to consider all the facts. I want people to know the background before they make their assessment, their evaluation of who I am and why I do what I want to do. So we should offer that same grace and generosity towards others. Do not judge and you will not be judged. It's, it's a complicated, it's a short sentence, but it's, it's complicated. And then he says, do not condemn and you will not be condemned. I think what Jesus is saying at this point, combining this with the judgment part, is don't try to play the role of God. Now the whole sermon that Jesus is preaching in Luke chapter 6, He's calling us to reflect the nature of God. Loving your enemies, that's the nature of God. That's the Holy Spirit living inside of you. While we reflect the nature of God, we don't play the role of God. We are not the ones who condemn. We are not the ones who give final judgment. God does that. And I am thankful that that's up to God and that's not up to me. And if we were having a discussion and you wanted to give some pushback at this point, again, I would encourage you to be humble and to remember that we aren't God. God is the one who judges and condemns. And then he says, at the end of verse 37, forgive and you will be forgiven. If you've been going through this gospel reading plan, you've probably read this at another point. I think all four gospels really hit on this concept. Forgiveness is really important. Not just receiving forgiveness that God offers us through Christ, but being willing to forgive others. Uh, I've mentioned before that I'm an advocate for reciting, for praying the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11. It's become a part of my regular prayer routine. And Jesus teaches this prayer where He says, Our Father who is in heaven, holy is Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And then what's the next line? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. There was a time period where on a regular basis I would pray this with my children as I was putting them to bed at night. This was a part of our prayer routine. And I was saying it from memory. I didn't have the Bible out in front of me. And even though I knew this prayer really well, there was a certain part of the prayer that I kept leaving out. And when I'd go back and look at it, it was this part. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Why was I forgetting this? I knew it. I knew it by memory. Why was I skipping over it as I said this prayer? I think probably... Subconsciously, I was doing that because I know this is difficult. I want God to forgive me of my sins. I need that. But the extension, the part that Jesus adds to that is as we forgive those who sin against us. If we want to ask for this bold prayer of God forgiving us of our own sins, we need to be willing to forgive others. That's what Jesus is saying. In Matthew chapter 18, we'll get to that, to the Gospel of Matthew next month. Uh, Peter has a good question. How many times should I forgive? Seven times? That's the question Peter asked Jesus. Seven times? Doesn't that seem like a lot? And then Jesus gives him this ridiculous answer, like seven times 70 or 77 times, depending on what translation you're reading. And then in Matthew 18, he goes on to tell this parable that we know it as the parable of the unmerciful servant. And in answer to Peter's question about how many times should I forgive, he tells this parable about a guy who has this huge debt forgiven, just wiped away. A debt that he could never pay off. 
And then he goes out and he finds somebody that owes him a much smaller debt. And he is unwilling to forgive this other guy of his debt. He's been forgiven of a huge debt, but he won't forgive someone else. And you get the idea behind the parable. That we're all sinners. And through the blood of Christ, he has forgiven us our sins. And what he's calling us to do is to extend that nature of God to others. To offer that grace, to be willing to forgive. And that's not an easy thing to do. This is unnatural for us as human beings. And then in verse 38 of Luke 6, he says, give and it will be given to you. Again, this is about you reap what you sow. A lot of times we look at this and we think, well, this is about financial giving. I I don't know if that's what Jesus is saying. Maybe that's applied there or, or implied there in some ways. Maybe... You give financially and God takes care of you. I think overall, though, what I've titled this sermon is living with a generous disposition. Living with a generous spirit towards others. Give the benefit of the doubt. Give love and forgiveness. And it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, will be poured out into your lap. With the measure that you use, it will be used against you. Okay, now we'll skip down to verse 43. And Jack, you mentioned verse 40 in your scripture reading. I'm going to come back to that at the very end here. But for right now, we'll skip down to verse 43. Uh, we've already read the last part of the sermon on the, two weeks ago. So I'm going to focus right now on verse 43 through 45. Jesus says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So as he begins to wrap up his sermon here, if I were to summarize what we just read, I think his overall point is what's going on inside of you is what comes out of you. Our external deeds, what we do on the outside, the good deeds that we either do or we don't do, those are important. But this whole sermon, a lot of Jesus' core teachings, what he's saying is, it starts with the heart. It's about what's going on inside of you. It's about what's going on in your heart. And that'll show by the way that you live your life, by the way that you treat people. And if you're have evil thoughts and evil intentions going on, eventually what will be produced is bad fruit. But out of the goodness of the heart, if you have good thoughts going on, if you have the Holy Spirit guiding you in your life, eventually what you produce is good fruit. It's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. What's going, what speaks, what's going on inside of you is what comes out of you. Uh, I was reminded as I was studying through this part of the sermon and just kind of the end of the sermon... Uh, anybody know who this is? This is a picture of a guy named Coach Coach K. A lot of you know who he is. Okay, he is a head men's basketball coach at Duke University. He's been there for a very long time and he's been very successful. I I don't even really watch college basketball, so I don't love Duke and I don't hate Duke. Now, some of you may already have those emotions stirred up within you. It doesn't matter to me. It's just an interesting story. Back in the early two thousands and two thousand four. Coach K had a job offer to leave Duke University and to become the head basketball coach for the Los Angeles Lakers. 
And he was going to make $40 million if he did this. So that seemed like a natural next step for him. Leave college, go to the NBA, make a lot more money. He's moving up the ladder. He's earned it. He had a tough time making the decision, though, because his heart was still with Duke. So he wasn't real sure. He's like, the natural thing would be to take the NBA job, but his heart said to stay at Duke University. And then right before he had to make his final decision, he received an email from a student at the school. And the student said that when he grew up, he would play basketball in his driveway, and he would shoot three-pointers and pretend like it was a game-winning shot. He said, I always pictured myself... Not only playing for Duke, but for playing for you, Coach K. And he said, even though I didn't have the skills to make it to Duke to play basketball, as a student, he said, I'm a part of the sixth man as the rest of the student body is. And he said, we all view you as our coach, the entire student body. And he ended the email by saying, please still be my coach. Well, a couple of days later, Coach K held a press conference to officially announce that he was staying at Duke and he was not going to the Lakers, which everybody that was a part of Duke was really excited about. Everybody that was a part of the Lakers organization was really disappointed. But during this press conference, he called that student out by name. And he said this student's email was the turning point for him. And when he read that email, it brought him to tears. And he went with what his heart was telling him to do, and he decided to stay at the university. Now, I tell that story in comparison to what Jesus just said for a number of reasons. For one, that student wrote this email out of the overflow of his heart, right? Jesus says, out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. But I write that also, I mean, I share this also because Coach K, for a couple of decades at that point, or longer, he had invested in the lives of student athletes. And you reap what you sow. And what he was sowing was the benefit of loving students, of loving a university, of giving his all to other people. And now as time had gone on, they respected him so much that they desperately wanted him to stay. You reap what you sow. If you're willing to invest in others, you will produce good fruit. And I think the kingdom of God works the same way. If we're willing to invest in the church and we're willing to invest in the lives of others and to live out these core teachings that Jesus teaches, what he's saying is trust in that and eventually you will produce good fruit. Now at the same time, you look at a coach like this and he didn't get to where he's at. He didn't become this successful by being everybody's good buddy, being a good friend. He had to be hard on students. He had to kick people off the team when it was necessary. He had to push them harder and harder. But the players and the students didn't look at him and say, you are so judgmental, coach. He didn't earn that reputation because they knew he cared deeply for them. So when he was pushing them to become better, they wanted to get better. We don't want to live as judgmental people. We don't want to have the reputation of being judgmental, hypocritical people. We want people, the world around us, the community around us, the church around us to know that we love them. And when we're calling someone to a higher standard, we're doing it out of love and not judgment. And I think there's some similarities to what I see in Coach K and how life would look in the kingdom of God. Now you take this sermon as a whole, Luke chapter 6, verse 20 through 49. And Jesus teaches some crazy things. They're upside down. They're backwards. They're unnatural. And for me, they're uncomfortable. And the question that I've asked now for the third week in a row 
is do you really trust Jesus? Well, yeah, we say we do. We trust Jesus. We, we take communion. A lot of us have been baptized into Christ. We trust Jesus with our eternal life. But do we trust Jesus with our life now? Do we trust Jesus enough to put these things into practice? We looked at last week. Love your enemies. Resist the urge to repay evil for evil. Instead, turn the other cheek. Do good to those who do you harm. Pray for those who persecute you. Lend to people without expecting anything back. Give this agape love. Even if somebody doesn't love you back. That's unnatural. That's difficult to do. Do not judge. Our instinct is to judge. Do not condemn. Instead, forgive. And give. And it will be given to you. These are hard things to do. And it's unnatural. But do we trust Jesus to actually live this out? And do we internalize it so much that through time, instead of this, these teachings being unnatural to us, it becomes second nature to us. It becomes natural to who we are. We want to call people as a church. One of the, our mission, our vision, what we are passionate about is discipleship. To make, mature, and to multiply faithful followers of Jesus. And if we want to call people into a relationship with Christ where they are following Him, we've got to be willing to live it out ourselves. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 36, Jesus says, Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. These core teachings of Jesus, as I've already mentioned, this is living out the nature of God. Extending to others what God has extended to us. And in verse 39 and 40, Jesus says, Can the blind lead the blind? No, they'll both fall into a pit. And then what Jack pointed out during the scripture reading this morning, a student is not above his teacher, but when a student is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. And I've always thought that Luke chapter 6, verse 40 was a great definition of what discipleship is. Jesus is our teacher. And the goal in life is not just to make it to heaven after we die. The goal in life is to become as much like Jesus here and now as much as we can. Fully trained, we'll be like our teacher. If we want to be like our teacher, everything we've just read from Luke chapter 6, this has to become a part of who we are. Now, if we want to forgive others and live with this kind of extreme agape love, we've got to first receive it. We can't give to others what we haven't received ourselves. If you're in a place today where you've never received this forgiveness that God offers through the blood of Christ, I would encourage you to at least have a conversation with one of our elders. Come talk to me. And we want to talk to you about what it means to give your life over to Christ. We would like to talk to you about what it means to be baptized into Christ and to receive this love and forgiveness that He offers. And if you are struggling with anything that we've talked about, if you need to be encouraged or prayed for, we're going to give you an opportunity for the next few minutes to find one of our elders who will be around the room. Some will be in the back and one will be up front with me. We want you to know you will not be judged. Nobody's going to be looking at you, judging you. We're here to love you and support you. So if you need to take this time to respond, we want to encourage you to do that. And I want to invite you to stand back up as we continue to sing.